good with numbers, seems to be like a reasonable profession. I'll just sort of go into finance. This will be a fine job. I literally every week for six months, she would walk by my cubicle and I had been given a bunch of awful reports. This was sort of back in the day. In the beginning, it was kind of fun, right? Because I like solving problems and I'm sort of doing this. And after a few weeks, I was very bored. I think that was sort of what that searching was, right? And why I might have flipped jobs, you know, every sort of three to five years, because I kept thinking there was like something better in a different HR role that I could find. And it's not in HR. It was just circumstance that I fell into that space of working with our clients, understanding what their challenges are, developing the solution with the team. There is definitely the networking and the business development piece because I get to meet a lot of people. I get to hear what's going on for them. Getting in front of an audience and being able to, you know, share my story is really quite exhilarating. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Regular Leadership. And as always, I have an amazing guest in conversation today. I have Shah Roman and... I'm going to ask her to introduce herself properly to see what she says and what she leaves out. But just before our last come on the mic, I just want to say that if you're listening on YouTube, on Apple and Spotify, thank you very much. I absolutely appreciate it. If you don't mind hitting that subscribe button, absolutely would make a massive difference and let the platforms know this is something worth listening to because it is. So, Shara, can you introduce yourself to my audience so they know who you are? I'd be delighted. Chope, thank you so much for having me here. Um, so I am a mom, a wife, a daughter. I am an entrepreneur, an author. I am um, someone I identify as being a global citizen. I grew up in uh, Nigeria, but actually before that I was born in Bombay in India. I grew up in Nigeria, as I said, through elementary school. I went to high school in England. I went to, I lived in Greece for a couple of years uh, where I ended up getting married. And I am married um, for, gosh, almost 35 years now to my, uh, my husband, who is originally from Puerto Rico, grew up in New York. We met in Lagos, Nigeria while he was stationed there. And um, so I now live here in the United States and run a business that focuses on helping leaders build thriving, inclusive organizations. So we work at that intersection of people's strategy and culture. Just published a book and um, I said I was a mom. So I'm a mom to two children and two dogs. Um, so yeah, so that's that's me. <laughs> between, between the children and the dogs, which one keeps you busy the most? Oh gosh, um, definitely the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have I have two doodles and they are super high maintenance, particularly particularly the uh, the boy, yeah, yeah. But you know my kids are. Um, I have a daughter who's almost twenty and she's in uh, university, and I have a son who is seventeen and uh, he's got one more year left in high school and getting ready to you know figure out the whole college scene. So they keep me busy in different ways too. I can imagine. I love how you describe yourself as as a global citizen because 
it's um it's very rare that I actually get a perspective from was I I was born in Nigeria and I came to the UK when I was a teenager. And one thing I always used to say was coming to the UK um, as, as a teenager, this is the first time that you really realized being a black man in an environment that's, that's very white, you kind of stand out. And you kind of flip that where you're in Nigeria and you're someone that obviously is very, very different, but you grew up in that environment. I'm curious to hear like, what was what was it like for you and your, your journey there? You know, it wasn't, it, I didn't know any different, right? Because I went there when I was about a year and a half. And um, quite honestly, for the first, you know, 10, 11, actually probably even 12 years of my life, I felt I was Nigerian, not Indian, because India was just this birthplace for me, right? I was born there, my family was there, but my friends, my society, my way of life, everything was, um, you know, was in Lagos. And um, the people that I was surrounded by were incredibly warm and, uh you know, sort of fun and, and lighthearted and caring. Uh, but then I also went to a, uh, a Lebanese community school. So my teachers were mostly from Lebanon, but I also had teachers from, uh, from, from the U S and from, you know, Europe, but mostly, mostly Lebanon. And, uh, I had friends from all over the world. So my perspective was actually, um, you know, just very, very sort of global and dispersed and not really knowing anything, right? When you come to the U.S., everything gets framed in a very different way. Um, but I, uh, you know, obviously there were, there were, there were Nigerians that were local and then there was the expats, but I think the way my, uh, my parents sort of, um, integrated into the society, we just had friends from everywhere. So it sort of didn't really, I mean, obviously I knew I was living in, in Nigeria. I knew that everyone who was national there was, was Nigerian, but I didn't look at it as, um, well, they are, they are black or they're a Nigerian, you know, therefore that's why they're here. It was just like, oh, you were born here. Okay. I was born there and let's all just have a good time together. Sounds very flighty, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the I guess it's the reality though when you're integrated into the culture it just becomes part of how you live and how you show up and that's that's the difference of being even just plugged in for a little one out like you said like 12 years is a very long time yeah and it was an environment you're in with the schools and teachers and everything else like that it's just this is this is part of your upbringing yeah and how does that then shape your trajectory as you look at your career because even before you like started to have your own business you worked in some, some major organizations um which like found me cj and everything else like that but how did your career actually go down that particular track before you started to do what you do now well i uh as i'm sure you probably hear from a lot of people i fell into sort of the world of hr um so when i so i kind of left out a couple of little things. My parents ended up living in Nigeria for 25 years. And so even though I left to go to India for a couple of years to live with my grandparents for middle school, I would go back to Nigeria. And then I, I came to the U.S. as a young adult, you know, married, put myself through undergraduate, um, ended up putting myself through, well, my company did as well, went through business school as I was working. But my very first job, um, was uh, a professional job was was in the HR space. Um, but before that, I had spent about six months 
um, in accounting. And I just figured, you know, I'm good with numbers, seems to be like a reasonable profession. You know, I'll just sort of go into finance and, and accounting. And I remember um, when I was interviewing for the job, the head of HR was like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I want to do. I'm work, you know, I'm going to college. This will be a, this will be a fine job. And anyway, I literally every week for six months, she would walk by my cubicle and I had been given a bunch of um, awful reports. This is sort of back in the day when we still had, you may not even know these doc matrix printers. And I had reams of stacks of things to reconcile. And in the beginning, it was kind of fun, right? Because I like solving problems and I'm sort of doing this. And after a few weeks, it was, I was very bored. And so she'd walk by and she'd say, um, uh, you know, are you sure you don't want to come to HR? Are you sure you don't want to come to HR? And I'm like, I don't even know what HR is. Long story short, she she finally convinces me. I was like, okay, this is, I'm going to poke my eyes out if I stay in this in this role any longer. And so I just sort of went into that role. She gave me a lot of freedom, right? She gave me sort of a lot of opportunity to test different things. So she had ideas and um, she was like, go have at it. You know, I want to create, um, I don't even know if she called it employee engagement, but that's really what she was trying to do. And um, she said, I think a newsletter might work. Go figure out if that's what we want to do, right? And so that's how I sort of, you know, I think just sort of living in, in Nigeria and I, I've also defined myself as having been, always being a guest in somebody else's country, right? So in Nigeria, got to figure out what's my friend scene, right? How do you sort of work things out? When I actually went to India, that was really hard for me in middle school and I had to sort of navigate, right? Then I go to England. I'm in a whole different situation, very different class system there. So the way I learned to sort of cope and, and figure things out was to to be curious, to lean into, hey, tell me about yourself, tell me about what your interests are, and to really get into sort of that that um, that sort of line of of getting to know people and building relationships is really the fundamental place that you start. And so that's what I did. And um, you know, from there, I just um, I realized, oh, wait a second, this is actually there's an opportunity to. Uh, to really be strategic in terms of how you design organizations, how you create systems for people to really thrive. And this is, you know, before sort of DEI was a thing or culture was a thing, right? This is in the uh, early 90s that I'm sort of having sort of these connect these sort of thoughts in my head, not all fully connected. And, um, and, and so I just, you know, continue to sort of pursue opportunities that allowed me to grow. I was very deliberate in not getting caught up on titles, um, which is really hard, uh, particularly in this country. But I, well, I think I got good advice that, you know, find, well, so two things. One is I got good advice from the people that I worked with. Secondly, my family always sort of, um, you know, raised me with this concept of know who you are be true to yourself um you know sort of don't don't compromise right your sort of values and your your morals and obviously that's a hard thing to do as you're as you're growing as you're moving up in in an organization and not to say Chope, that i was i was completely title agnostic that's that would be very untrue but i didn't make decisions purely on money or purely on title I really sort of would say, um, what does this opportunity do for me? What do I learn? Who do I work with? 
Um, what are the new cool things that I can do? How much room and latitude am I going to have for experimentation? And what can I bring to the organization, right? And I'm really confident in my abilities that even if I don't know something, I'll figure it out. I think living in different countries, having to navigate as a, as a kid, you know, taught me that, right? Um, so I was sort of flying all around the world by myself at 10, right? Um, and at 14, I was like, I don't want to be an unaccompanied minor anymore. I know how to navigate all these global airports. Um, but anyway, so so that's sort of how I how I navigated and and made decisions um, for the most part that that worked out for you know in a in a positive way that um, the people that I worked with were incredibly supportive, always there to help me learn and grow, you know, give me opportunities and stretch me. I think that's probably the best thing that they did. They always recognized my potential um, and didn't always hold back on, well, she hasn't done this, so she can't do it, right? And so that just kind of reinforced my own belief system in, uh, you know, taking taking calculated risks, um, learning from mistakes, and um, yeah, and just sort of trying to enjoy things as I went along. I was um, finding quite interesting when a lot of times when it takes other people to believe in us for us to believe in ourselves and step into something new. But I've also started to see the flip side of that where there have been times when people have told us, oh, I believe in you that you can do X and we step into it. And then after a couple of years, we're like, but I don't really like it. But you lose sight of who you are because someone believed in you and you just run with that belief. Have you experienced that on your journey? Because like you said, you've had so many people surrounding you telling you great stuff, telling you you can step into this and you've gone gone ahead. Have there been times where you'd be like, Actually, I don't really want to do that. It's not me. I haven't had so so yes and no. It hasn't been because other people have um said I could do something. It was actually, you know, sort of really what um created the uh the decision for me to to start my own business. So I always sort of thought that, okay, now that I've sort of made this career and I've sort of fallen to HR and I'm working, you know, in in really sort of strategic culture transformation types of roles, um, having a lot of, um, you know, great experiences, that that's what I want. I really want to be the head of HR. I really want to have that seat at the table. I really want to be able to be that strategic advisor to the CEO and and help to 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 develop and drive and implement the strategy of the organization. And I got that. And I realized when I got it kind of a year and a half in that I'm like, wait, I don't like this at all because all of the things that I, there are certainly parts of that job being a head of HR that I loved, um, which is all of that strategy design, you know, where are we going, right? What's happening uh, in the market? How do I help uh, position the organization from a people and culture perspective to achieve that? Um but what I didn't like was all of the operation stuff, all of the care and, you know, the sort of day to day running the, you know, making sure the trains run on time and doing all of those things. And it was sort of this, um, you know, really interesting place for me where I thought thought I was and it was, you know, partly I was caught up a little bit in the materialism of, you know, of, of what I said, the title and, and the kind of the office and sort of all of those perks that go with it. And um, I was I was interviewing for um, 
I was like, okay, I've got to get out of this, this role here. And I was interviewing for other heads of HR jobs because that's, of course, what people sent. And in one of them, the CEO actually said to me, he's like, I don't understand why you're in HR. He said, if I had a sales position open, I would have you as head of sales and business development. And I was like, really? Because that's what I feel I do really well, but no one has ever given me that opportunity. So in a way, I was sort of pigeonholed, right? Because I started in HR and that's what I defined my career as, that I sort of grew in that space and was given opportunities in that space. And so that really sort of struck me. And as I was, you know, interviewing for all these jobs, I was like, they're all the same. And actually, I'm just running away from, you know, one job into another that looks new and shiny. And I'll be excited about for sort of 18 months because that's all the fun stuff. But eventually I'm not going to like it because the job is the job, right? There's the good, fun, strategic part. and There's the operations part. And so, you know, just kind of a whole confluence of events uh, sort of came to bear. And I was like, you know what? I, I have this entrepreneurial sort of spirit that runs through my, my, my family. Um, I am entrepreneurial, like early, early in my career. I actually tried my hand at real estate and insurance sales, failed miserably. But I sort of did that reflection and realized that that's who I was. And that is what attracted me to these strategic roles that I had gone after. And that's what people did see in me that while they were still in the HR and culture space, they would um, always be like, oh, well, sure, I can help with this, you know, integration on the M&A side, or, hey, we can have Shara sort of look at our, um, how we're organized from, you know, a global HR perspective. Actually, we were, we were not globalized. We were, um, we were sort of localized and how, you know, she can help figure out how to bring us in a global way. So I always had sort of these challenges to solve that were bigger than my, my regular job. And that's what I liked. And that's all of those pieces sort of came together for me. And that's what made me start my business. Um, well, that and a couple other things, but it was that. Um, so I don't know that that people um, necessarily, you know, specifically believed in me or, or asked me to do something that I realized was not necessarily there. Like part of it was me myself driving myself into that into that path. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. An Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. The early failures you had in your entrepreneurial career that you said you failed miserably. What lessons did you learn from that? And how quickly did you rebound from those experiences? Well, I rebounded by leaving that to the side, right? I was like, okay, um, yeah, maybe I'm not, maybe this is not for me. And I just pivoted back into, well, actually that's sort of when I was still in, in college and I was working and, and going through school. And that's sort of when I went into the, you know, accounting HR sort of space that was like, okay, maybe I should just like go get a proper job and like do things the normal way type of thing. Um, what I learned that I, I didn't learn at the time, you know, it was later that I realized that relationships and networking are more important than actually knowing, um, not to say that you don't need to know what you're doing, but that 
really having those relationships, building, you know, building your network, making sure that you have a lot of people that, um, that know who you are and know how you can help them is, is important. Um, I sort of, you know, realize that you, uh, you can't sort of just pass a test and have competence in a space that you actually have to sort of really, um, learn and, and experience, you know, whether it's from others or kind of learning just sort of on the side through, through reading or whatever, um, that that's what you, you want to do. And, um, but it didn't dissuade me from ever wanting to do anything different again. Right. I was like, Hey, I, I tried real estate. Um, I had some success in it, but it's really hard when you're 21 and you have no network, no connections. I didn't understand. And so part of it too, is I realized that there was a cultural and I'll use cultural in just a very loose way that there was sort of this, these unsaid norms and behaviors that I didn't even know existed um, that come into play when you, when you are in the work world. And so I was living in a community that was, um, you know, predominantly white, predominantly sort of much older than me. First of all, I'm 21, right? So most people are in, in that field were in their 30s and 40s. Most of the buyers were in their 30s and 40s. So there was just this big sort of disconnect. Um, and I sort of, you know, realized too that, um, yeah, that you just sort of really had to build that trust. And I had not, I didn't have, I didn't build trust because I didn't even have, like I was brand new into the country, right? I'd been here a couple of years and we didn't really know a lot of people. So I didn't have like a network of trusted people that could help me uh, be successful. And so yeah, it was a, it was a good learning. And, um, you know, I, I think it sort of reiterated that, okay, you're, you're smart and you can do things, you can pass exams that are hard for people. And that's not the only piece, right? Like there's, there's uh, multiple things that you have to sort of bring into, into the space to be successful, but all of that kind of started to connect over time. And it's, um, so it's great to be able to, I guess, have that fallback or some of those lessons and that experience and then go into a corporate environment and start to kind of put the pieces together. That famous, like Steve quote, thing jobs quote, when you look backwards and things begin to kind of make sense. That's my interpretation of it, basically, rather than say what you actually said, but that's kind of what it kind of comes down to, because when you think about you being 21, and my mind goes back to what you said, which really stood out to me actually as a 10 year old flying around the world by yourself. That's a, that's a level of freedom and audacity for a 10 year old to kind of have. And it seems to me that that's always been a common thread throughout your career of being willing to try new things. Okay. Recognizing, okay, this is not, this is not it. Let me go down a particular path. Okay. You know what? There's something more than just doing HR. Let me go down another path. So you've had that curiosity. It seems from, from day up, like inside of you. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, you know, it's probably, um, uh, partly innate, partly situational, right. It's sort of that nurture and nature combination. Um, I think I, part of it is that I also have 
great role models in my in my family, right? That um, especially the women are um, are sort of very strong and all strong in different in different ways. Um, you know, my 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 grandmother, um, uh, my mom's mom, so my maternal grandmother who passed away many years ago, but she she was the one I lived with when I lived in in India. She, um, you know, had a lot of confidence in me and a lot of um, belief in me, but also was one who very much stood out, or I should say, but, but, and also was just, she was just someone who, who had very strong um, beliefs. She, she's the one who sort of showed me how she had friends all over the world. Um, there was this sort of um, sense of you know, life may not be fair. So she had, um, family business, you know, when things were sort of divided between her dad and his brother, the business went to the men, but the women had sort of shares in the business, but weren't allowed to sort of work in the business, right? And so, but she didn't let that sort of stop her, right? She still charted her path and and found ways to um, to do things and make impacts on whether it was on a philanthropic pers- perspective or whatever that she wanted to do. Her daughters, you know, my mom sort of leaves India and heads off to Africa with her, with her, you know, brand new husband. You know, things you just didn't do in the in the late '60s, right? Um, my two aunts both uh, got divorced early on in their marriages, but figured out how to navigate sort of that that world. Um, being single moms in a in a country where you know being single mother, being divorced was sort of just not something that was. Um, that was sort of part of the, you know, part of the fabric. My dad's mom got divorced when he was, so this is in the 40s, right? Like, so everyone has had to figure out their own way and, um, you know, sort of just, you know, lean into their their own strengths, lean into their community. So I kind of just had that, right? And then, um, and then I was thrust into these situations where I had to, figure out how to how to how to survive how to navigate how to thrive right because surviving wasn't just um you know good enough right like you you want to um I know I wanted to be happy and and have friends and be a part of the group we all want to belong at the end of the day and and I think that was what was um what was driving me so I'm not sure I answered your question Shuhei, but uh, <laughs> you know I, I think it was sort of a combination of of just how I'm wired and my uh, you know, my my family around me and the opportunities that presented themselves. You know, and I think the best thing for 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 teaching me was actually the markets in Lagos. So I was negotiating in those markets in Pidgin English with all of those traders at a very <laughs> young age. I, I I swear I think they were probably happy that I ended up leaving Lagos because I would negotiate them down whether whatever I was buying. <laughs> I would, you know, they'd be like, I don't know, 50 Naira. I'm like, no, two Naira. <laughs> we can go back and forth. And I mean, I think that boldness, that confidence that, um, you know, here I am, a, a young girl, right? And I'm yeah. figuring this out. And I'm like, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you know, you you think I'm a, oh my gosh, I can't remember the the, the term, but you know, obviously they were like, oh, you're, you're a foreigner, you know, um, yeah. you're, you're, you're a white girl, quote unquote. 
And um, I was like, no, I'm Nigerian and you're going to give me the Nigerian price and I'm not going to pay this. So um, I'm sure, you know, I know that had a lot to do with uh, with kind of just my my audacity. Right. And uh, my sort of not to say lack of fear. I, I do have there's some fear I have. Of course, we all do. But for the most part, if it's if it's not like life or death, it's like, yeah, what's going to happen? Like, what's the worst that can happen? I screw up. OK, <laughs> so. There is a, um, I would say like there's a, we'll talk about the nurture nature conversation a lot of times, but I personally aspire to like the nurture around you, the environments around, especially from a young age, really shape who you are as an individual. And Lagos markets are tough. Like they're, they're, that's like a school of real hard nuts. But for you to be in that environment and pushing back, and he said learning a lot. I'm not surprised where, when you talk about having the boldness and the courage and being able to lean into stuff and, and learn and evolve and adapt forever easily, that that's been, that was part of who you are. Like you said, like, what you said earlier on, like, oh, I'm not, I'm not foreign, I'm Nigerian, I'm, I'm, I live here, so give me that. And even when I think about when you talked about um, you moving into, into sales and launching your, your company, there was a curiosity that kind of came from me that have, has there always been a side of you, even your HR days that knew that this was, there was more to me than what I'm currently doing right now. You didn't know what it was, but you just felt that there was something that just wasn't fully clicking, that you weren't fully using all your, your skills and your talents and stuff that you had. For sure. For sure. And I think that, um, the more I was in a role that had me sort of, you know, more in HR, like, yes, there was, there was, there was always this piece. I think that was sort of what that searching was, right. And why I might've flipped jobs, you know, every sort of three to five years. Cause I kept thinking there was like something better in a different HR role that I could find. And ultimately the realization was it's not in HR. It was just, you know, this, circumstance that I fell into that space when I did and then you know you just sort of built I just sort of built my career um there because it just sort of made sense right and people would call and be like oh I have this new opportunity and I'm like oh yeah okay it sounds really fun right you know so you just sort of keep going but yeah for sure and I think that there was some of it that came out in um like, you know, when we would do um, due diligence on on an M&A transaction that I actually sort of loved the analytical piece. And I sort of loved the the idea, you know, first of all, you're sort of sitting in a room, right, with, you know, 15, 20 people and you're just like all in for a few weeks. And that that energy of like really seeing all of those different elements of the financial piece, the sales piece, the customer piece, the management piece, you know, the benefits that all of that like happening. I was like, yeah, this is my, this is my thing, but I didn't want to be like an investment banker or, you know, some due diligence expert, right? Like I knew that, but I knew that there was like that energy that I had from all of those different elements coming together was, uh, was definitely, you know, a high, right? Gave me a high. Um, I, I remember too, Chope, when I was, so I was an older student, right? Getting my undergraduate degree here. And I was in my, uh, one of my classes, it must've been 
Like I had this one professor, Larry Penwell, that I took HR, organizational behavior, and OD with um, work development. And in one of those classes, I remember saying to him, I want to be CEO, but I don't want to sell my soul. And that's what it feels like you have to do to be CEO, um, you know, because we were studying like all these companies, Coca-Cola or IBM or whatever they were. And I remember that, you know, and he said, you know, he said, yeah, you're right, but you can figure out a way to, you know, maybe you can figure out a way to to do that without having to sell your soul. And I think that that was always there that I wanted more, but didn't quite know what that would look like. And I always thought that if I ever became a CEO, it would be for an already existing organization. I mean, at one point, right, I was like, oh, if I ever move there, it would be within an organization sort of moving, kind of navigating, and maybe I'd be in a more uh, HRE type of organization, like an HR tech company. And, you know, that would be the way like those were some thoughts that, that I had at one point. Um, but, but at the end of the day, I think this, um, this drive, this bug, this sort of nascent, you know, thing in me sort of really started to come to bear, you know, probably about 10, 12 years ago. So how do you combine all those different elements now with the work that you and your organization do? Um, yeah. How do I do that? <laughs> I mean, there's there's a lot I have right going on. I mean, one element is um, the part that I am, you know, uh, sort of uh, working with our with our clients, sort of understanding what their problem or prospective clients, right? Finding what understanding what their challenges are, helping them sort of peel back to identify sort of what's what's sort of really going on, and then developing sort of the the solution with the with the team to sort of say okay here's how we think we can uncover what's going on for you right and and go do that um there is definitely the networking and the business development piece which you know is very energizing for me right because i get to meet a lot of people i get to hear what's going on for them so it not only sort of it enriches me in many ways because i'm connecting with people i'm making new friends i'm building relationships i'm hearing about what is on their mind, it makes me sort of start to think about, oh, what are the connections that I'm hearing? How does that all come together? Um, you know, as, as now as an author and uh, a, a you know public speaker, I mean, I've always you know, done that for the last 10, 12 years, but I'm doing so much more of it. I actually love, uh, I love that, right? So getting in front of an audience and being able to, um, you know, share my story, share sort of uh, experiences that I've had and be able to, you know, motivate and inspire and help them have some aha moments is really quite exhilarating. And um, and then, of course, there's sort of the, the running the business, which is the less interesting or less exciting part for me. Right. Like I that's probably the part that I. I know that I need to find a way to transition off my plate because that is an energy depleter for me. So that operational piece, but you know, when you're a founder or entrepreneur, sort of, you know, you not a startup, but you got to do it. You got to do it. And um, yeah, so that's, so that's there, but I, I feel that I, all of those sort of pieces come to bear. So I'm still doing, I mean, I am very 
passionate about the space of culture and creating environments where people can thrive and thinking strategically about that and how that is linked back to the business and you know how they sort of drive each other. So that is happening by virtue of the work that we do, right? By the conversations that I I have with current clients, prospective clients, and then trying to help them achieve, uh, you know, achieve sort of their their goals. So that is very rewarding, and that is, I think, sort of pulling on you know those elements of um, wanting to to be with people, thinking outside the box. Uh, you know, challenging myself, challenging the the client, all of that is is sort of how it all comes together. And then, do you think it's actually possible to be able to have a culture that thrives in crisis? Going ultimately back to some of what you wrote in your book. The reason why I ask that is, right now, I think it's safe to say that a lot of just based on the current environment, there's a lot of crisis, there's a lot of chaos in organizations. And you're seeing some really well-established companies who had really great cultures previously. I'm going to say panic, but let me reframe it. They make decisions that have blown up their culture and it's not necessarily enabling the environment for others who are remaining to thrive. So I'm curious to hear some of your, so you're taking your insight and the years of experience as to what can organizations actually do to be intentional about creating that environment despite what is happening? Yeah. So I think that is, that's a, a great question. Um, I think it is the, um, I, I think it, the, the, the issue with, with companies sort of um, not being as successful um, is is a real one, right? That has affected many, many organizations. So when I look at culture, culture is an organic, ever living, breathing um, thing. So you can't just say, I have a great culture, and then that stays static. So the first thing that that you know companies need to sort of be really clear on and need to, uh, come back to on a very regular basis is to be very clear about what is our North Star, right? What is our purpose? What is our why? What are our values? How are they coming to life? How does that help us bring our strategy to life? And really be intentional about what is the culture they want to create? Because a culture you may have curated and been successful for you five, 10 years ago um, is probably not going to be what you need today unless you're continuing to evolve that. We have demographic shifts, right? As we know, um, we've got Gen Zs coming into the workforce. We have millennials now moving into leadership roles and they're leading and seeing things in a different way. Our consumer behaviors have changed. So all of that needs to be sort of fed into this kind of process. And we do that often on the consumer side, but we don't do it on the internal employee side. So first is sort of being very, you know, intentional about your North Star, intentional about the culture you want to create and being very um, uh, iterative about it. Not to say that you're like changing things up, but that you're staying connected to what is going on and where you need to to shift and modify and ensure that things are are aligned. Um, the the second thing that does stand sort of the, the test of time is 
to also lean into that human element of work, which sounds all like, you know, fuzzy and, and soft and all of that. But at the end of the day, we have people that are working in our organizations. So we need to create these environments where people will thrive, that we are creating organizational structures where, um, you know, where we aren't creating too much hierarchy, right? Because people want to be able to be, be connected to, to, to levels of management, but that the people who are responsible for them actually have the, the time and are rewarded for managing people. Um, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, we, we eliminated so many layers of management, right? And we keep, we keep sort of flattening organizations. And the flattening has not eliminated bureaucracy. Um, it hasn't really allowed people to be more connected to each other, right? It, um, it, it, you've now created a situation where people have really sort of too much on their plate because you can't take the time to, <clears throat> to build relationships, to nurture the people on your team, to care and feed for them, to give them career opportunities, to get to know what motivates and drives them. If you as a manager or leader have like a work to do that is not people related, right? That you've got um, clients to meet or deliverables to put out, you can't sort of do both of those. And, and really creating that space where you are really um, in touch with the needs of your people, that you're helping them to learn and grow, that you're giving them those stretch opportunities, you're creating mentorship, that you're thinking about the diversity in your organization, you're thinking about how do I create that psychological safety, right? What do I do to hear everybody's um, voice? Those are all important, uh, you know, important things. And then there's that piece of of ownership in an organization where certainly there's a financial element of ownership, whether it's through profit, sh profit sharing or stock ownership, but not every organization can do that. But you can create ownership in organizations by distributing decision-making, right? By empowering people to own their work, to, let, to help people understand kind of what they need to do, you know, what that end goal needs to be, what that deliverable is, what that outcome is, but let them figure out the the how and um, the when that they do it. That allows you to have them that flexibility, right? Allows people to chart their own course to experiment. It allows you to look at experimentation and mistakes as um, as as ways to actually learn and grow versus being being penalized. And when you look at companies like, you know, Chobani or Patagonia, right, like these sort of big name companies that have stood the test of time and are continuing to evolve, those are a lot of the things that they lean into. I mean, the, the Chobani story is, is a really great one, right? The, the founder comes over here from, from Turkey, comes to the U.S. from Turkey. He starts this business in 2005 because he wants to recreate uh, the 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 yogurt that he enjoyed as a child, and he was like, "Hey, we don't have good yogurt in this country. How do I really, uh, you know, create this?" But so he had his like, "I want to have great yogurt, right?" And I want to bring this experience to people. But then, as he started his company, it was very intentional around how do I really benefit the community that I'm in. So there's sustainable farming, right? There's good products that are that are created that are put into the in, into the product. And then he's like, well, I need to hire people to do this job. He doesn't pay the minimum wage. 
most people in that line of business pay the least that they can get away with, right? But he's like, no, I want to, um, I, I want people to be a part of, um, uh, you know, to, to be to be treated well. So he's paying them above the minimum wage for these very, uh, you know, for these manufacturing jobs that that aren't. Uh, he actually just he actually distributed stock, you know, uh, in his company to everybody was that was there. And so this billion dollar ent- entity in 2016 is now worth um, twice as much, right? Seven years later. So there are, you know, when you're thriving in crisis, if you, if people know that they're cared about, if they know that you have their best interest in mind, if they know that there is sort of this equitable platform for everybody in the organization. Um, if they know that they have some stake in what is happening and how they can contribute to the challenges and the opportunities that the company has, um, they see leaders who are role modeling their values, and they see that this is a place that you know they want to they want to sort of invest in. That's what allows you to thrive in crisis. Unfortunately. We, you know, have these situations where um, we hit a bump in the road and then we lay off people. And I, you know, I've sat on the other side. I've unfortunately had to be one of those, right, conveying the the layoffs. And it really, really stinks. But as, uh, yeah, right? And, and it's, but as a leader, it's your job. Like if you're the CEO, you're part of that C-suite, it's your job to be looking at what is going on in the market. Right. And understanding that, hey, you know, in the U.S., the Fed has been raising rates for for whenever the last 12, 18 months. We know that we have inflation. We know that we have a recession coming. So what are the things that you can do as you see those those indicators way back when? Right. Why does it have to come to a point of laying people off when you could have maybe um, taken other decisions early on? And in my experience, that has not happened, right? Usually it's like, oh, let's just keep sort of doing what we're doing because we know we have uh, uh, an out, um, which has been tried and tested, right? Is we'll just cut, we'll just lay off a bunch of people. We'll take that expense. It'll help our numbers look good, right? And that's what your, um, you know, part of the situation too that we have is if you're a publicly traded company, you're driven by uh, you're driven by the 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 investors, right, and the the stock market, and so you're making decisions based on uh, financial outcomes, you know, profit motives, versus really thinking in that holistic way of people, purpose, planet, and profits. You know, using an ESG model of environment, sustainability, and governance, and thinking in a much more holistic way. That if you're an organization, if you're a company, what is your um, how can you make the 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 community that you live in, the society you live in, better? Because we can all impact it in a in a better way. So all of that to say that there is certainly a different framing that that leaders can take um, to create organizations where where you can thrive and you can navigate those crises and you can actually come out of it better than when you went in. This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture 
where your words and your values and your actions on the line will help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year, but that's something that you're interested in. If you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. I listen to you talking to Cheryl that and like this all makes perfect sense and obviously the work that we both do definitely applies and works. But one of the key differentiators is down to leaders having this particular mindset and approach to the organization and being intentional. And not just leaders at the top all the way throughout, because those are several layers. And that's where I've seen this start to break down. Because I might have you as a CEO, we might have you as a C-suite, but then when we start to go down to our VP directors and more and more layers down, that just starts to get loose. And those are the people where a large subset of the organization are reporting into. So how do you help and equip leaders at those particular levels to have the same kind of mentality, which then helps to fortify the culture? Yeah. So great question. We, as people look, look up, right. And we sort of see what are the folks at the top doing? What are the behaviors that are rewarded? What are the actions that are rewarded in this organization? So, you know, one of the, the, the things I sort of talk about is, uh, you know, I sort of help people sort of see culture in in terms of like an iceberg, right? Like, what do you see on a day-to-day basis and what do you say? So a lot of times people will say things like, oh, we value people. Um, uh, you know, I want you to, to think about your folks first, whatever that happens to be, right? Um, but if you're measuring success and you're giving people salary increases or bonuses or promotions or any of those sort of reward mechanisms based on financials and not people, yeah. then you're that is the message you're essentially sending is that that is what I reward, that is what I value. So it is, it is uncommon. I don't believe that I have, you know, in the research that we've seen or the, the experiences that I've had, that you have a C-suite that is absolutely modeling the way and the lower the middle the middle kind of sandwich you know management group is uh obtuse to that and not doing that because they they see that this is what i need to do more often than not you have kind of a hybrid right where you have maybe the ceo is doing the right thing maybe there's a couple of other folks on the c-suite but then you've got the head of sales or the head of revenue or, you know, whoever the, the head of operations that is um, that is sort of trampling over everybody, but they hit the numbers out of the park and they're the ones that are sustaining the organization. Um, and the, 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 you know, if they're jerks, that's tolerated and that's actually rewarded because they're getting more staff, they're getting more, uh, you know, promotions, they're getting more rewards. So 
you have to, it's, it's really tough, but you have to figure out how am I going to hold people accountable and what are the compromises I'm going to make when someone is, um, uh, you know, we're measuring the financial value that someone is sort of adding to the top line, but we're not looking at the um, sometimes un, uh, unaccounted for decrements to the top line that result in lack of productivity, lack of engagement, high turnover, lack of um, alignment, right? Um, all of those things that when people at the top or at any level are sort of creating that dysfunctional type of culture, that that is what permeates and and creates those problems. So we only often have one metric that we're using, right, in an organization, ultimately sort of bubbling up to that financial metric. And if that is the only lens we look at things, then it becomes hard. So those middle managers, they're not dumb, right? They're sort of saying, what are they doing on top that's rewarded? What do people get away with? And um, when they see what they need to do, then they follow along. And, you know, certainly part of it is is communicating effectively. Part of it is having those reward mechanisms in place. Part of it is the coaching and mentoring that that level needs to, to, to receive, right? Because we all need to learn and grow. Um, but it is... It is not something that I've seen that the top is doing what they need to and the middle is is going uh, is going awry. I don't know. You know, maybe you, maybe you have, but um, yeah, I, I, that's what I'm laughing. I'm like, yeah, I, could, I could agree with you that it's you're going to look up and I was trying to think, is there any environment that I've seen where the C-suite are, let's even say 80% modeling and the rest of them aren't? And in, in honest, the answer is no. It's always a very larger subset of people who are not doing the right thing than those who actually are in just based on my experience. I guess that's where it's always at the top. How can you actually change that? And then you have that trickle down effect as well as people who are looking up all the way throughout the organization. And you are now CEO um, at the Silver Line Group. And this is my small organization that's in the global organization you worked with, but one thing you said earlier on, you didn't want to become a CEO because you weren't, you thought you could be done differently. How are you doing it differently as a CEO? Yeah. So I'm still figuring that role out, right? I try to use a filter and my team definitely holds me accountable to the filter of, um, you know, is, is this an organization that we want to work with? Um, you know, why are we... I have to make sure that I always ask myself, am I pursuing this work because I want to grab the revenue or am I pursuing this work because the people that have asked us to do the work are really committed to doing the work? Because the work that you and I do around leadership and culture and, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion is not a, you know, one-time check the box sort of task or activity. It is a journey of change and transformation that is, both introspective and and um, external as well, that people need to be willing to go on, right? It's not the organization changing, it's the people changing. So, you know, one of those like selling my soul pieces, that was the part that I sort of felt that would not fit with who I was um, because making an impact and, and sort of having significance is, uh, you know, significance for others and in, in that impact I make is really important for me. Um, I... 
I work hard to choose clients that are that are really sort of a match for for us. Um, I try to be as transparent as possible and, um, you know, sort of let people know kind of where I'm coming from. You, you know, you don't, you, you sort of see Shara in, in sort of, there's, there's only one Shara that is often showing up. There's not like a Shara that goes on stage and a Shara that goes in front of a client and there's a Shara that, you know, deals with the team, right? It's kind of like, you get, this is, this is how I, I sort of bring my whole self into the workplace, whether it's, I'm having a great day or a not so great day. And I think that, um, you know, sort of sharing and that uh, sharing of, of things that might be uh, not going really well for me are, are things that I'm open to share. And I, I don't sort of hold back and try to, you know, put a veneer uh, put put a veneer on me. You know, that's what I that's what I try to do. It's a very um, self aware but open and vulnerable approach. Sounds like you're taking with being a being a CEO and having your team, your your people hold you accountable, which is it's quite refreshing to be honest. It's quite refreshing to hear um, you have that because it's very easy to be that as well. It's it's my company. I'm going to do what I want to do, and people are going to kind of fall in line. But kind of reversing that. It also speaks to the work that you are doing where you're not just doing it externally, but you're also doing it internally, which um, which I really like, to be honest. Yeah, you're going to walk the talk, right? Um, and, and, and it's a journey ourselves. So by no means are we perfect, right? And, um, and that's okay. Perfection is sort of this... Um, this, this construct that we've created that uh, is not really in a... not really a an effective uh, place to be. Um, so I, I think we're doing certainly some things right and there are things that we can continue to work on. How do you define leadership? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, how do I define leadership? Well, leadership can can exist at, at any level, right? At all levels. Um, and I think it for me, it's sort of coming forward with um you know sort of with with ideas it is um helping people along it's um you know sort of being collaborative um it's sort of really thinking about how you can help others and uplift them in uh in organizations and situations um, and, and, you know, by that, I sort of mean that you can be a colleague and, uh, you know, you can be sort of a, a team member, you can be someone who's brand new to the organization and you might see something, you might see an opportunity that, uh, for making an improvement, you can see an opportunity for reducing, um, waste. You can see an opportunity where someone is being marginalized and you can sort of step in and say, Hey, wait a second. That's not that's, you know, here's an idea how to do something differently, or that's not how you treat people, right? And, and like stand up for folks. So um, those are all the ways I see leadership sort of coming. It's like you see, you see something and you provide ideas, support um, to help make the situation better. Not very eloquent. Leadership isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's a ever-evolving complexity 
of and one of the areas that I like to lead into when it comes to leadership is what's learned about who you are as an individual. But I say a lot of how we lead at home. So whether it's like you said, as as a wife or as a parent, really, really speaks to our leadership um philosophy. And for someone who has been married for thirty five years, I cannot just leave this podcast without asking you like what are some of the the lessons and the learning that you can share from from 35 years of, of oh my gosh um i i think that the important piece is that you have to learn and grow with each other um you know we were very very young when we got married and i think what has um sort of kept us together is that we have um, that we have we have both grown and we kind of realized that we might have grown in different ways, but that we're still sort of accepting of of that. Um, we are very um, we're both very opinionated and we're both very uh, sort of, you know, strong in our beliefs, but we kind of like put it out there. Right. So um, I think having uh you know, sort of good communication and being able to sort of express what is happening um, is really good. Um, I think that we have also been very supportive of each other. And my husband probably, uh, I, I would say, much more supportive of me because I have done some, you know, I, I tended to, he was much more the steady state kind of um, guy. And, and I'm still always the one sort of experimenting, but we've we sort of, you know, understand that we're both really different people. And so those differences actually make us, you know, make us stronger because we are bringing different things into the, into the equation. Um, yeah. And just try to have fun. We probably don't have as much fun as we need to, but um, I think, you know, having that time where we can, uh, especially when our kids were young, where we would get together, you know, go away together as a family and have kind of like downtime on vacation, I think was sort of important. And now as the kids are older, it's actually time for us to like, you know, spend time together. Um, But yeah, those are, you know, those are some things. Um, It's, I also just sort of feel that uh, our, our kind of um, coming together was, uh, was sort of really kismet in a way, right? Because if you think about, uh, a Puerto Rican from the Bronx who joins the Marine Corps was supposed to be in Kenya at the last minute gets diverted to Nigeria. And here I am an Indian girl living in Nigeria, you know, finished high school in England, come back to live with my parents. Cause I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. And, um, and I had no intention of like finding a husband at, you know, 20 and, and getting married. Like that was not in the game plan at all, but it was just, it was just like meant to be. And so there's a part of that that, uh, you know, I, I always think about and I'm like, yeah, if I'm feeling really mad or angry or want to, you know, strangle him for whatever reason, <laughs> I think I sort of remember that as well, right? Because there are plenty of those moments. I'm sure he's had his fair share of those too. So, you know, you got to realize like it's sort of like culture, right? It's like an ever living, breathing thing. You've got to 
kind of keep figuring out where you are, what you need to change and how you need to, uh, how you need to adjust and, and realize that, um, you know, there's some things that he believes and thinks that I don't agree with and don't believe and vice versa. Right. And you got to like give space for people to, to do that, even though that might be really hard. I mean, and, and really it is hard because I'm like, I understand you have to believe exactly what I believe, but, but no, he doesn't. So <laughs> anyway. Yeah. This, this, this is the reality that you don't, you don't get to hear about. Like I said, this is also the synergy when I listen to you talk and listen to the work you do around culture and people and even like strategy, like all these kind of things come hand in hand. That's why there's never, I always say there's never a separation between the personal professional. It kind of ebbs and flows into, into each other. And if you can keep on going after their five years with that kind of history and learning, what you do with people in the workplace that's easy you're good (laughs) thank you very much for this conversation which i've I've thoroughly enjoyed like i've like i said i was i was fascinated i was reading a bit more about you and your history but learning the the journey that you've you've taken and things you've explored to get to where you got to right now but more so for me what always stands out is when people have this um i'm going to say this inkling this thought this feeling that there's something not complete just yet and you pursue that until you find it which you have done for me there's a satisfaction that comes in like now you're fully living and not just existing you're actually thriving in life that you've been called to live into and that's why i'm also curious to find out about what does it take to get that person to that level and what is what is it like that now they've arrived there and they're doing it and your journey just speaks volumes to you that so appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Thank you. I think listening to your gut is really important, you know, and being in tune with what am I, what am I feeling? How am I, you know, what, what is my body experiencing as I'm a part of this? And, um, I think it serves you well when you do that. Well, the book, Conscious Workplace, Fortifier Culture, Thriving Any Crisis is available now. Um, it's going to be in the show notes, as well as all the information of working with Shara and her amazing company, Silverline Group. You've had a little snippet of what they do and how they get involved. And I'm sure you're listening around thinking that I could do some of that in my environment, in my organization. So you can definitely connect with her and learn more how you can bring her in and help her to start to change align your people it's a real good strategy and really optimize your organization for that performance once again it's been a pleasure and we shall see you next week on everyday leadership thanks sure while you're still recovering from that amazing conversation let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out i am a technophile first and foremost i love all things tech i love all things new i'm like uh, a computer geek who likes to speak plain english and bridge the gap between the no's and the don'ts um i like big hairy challenges i steer towards things that are complicated and difficult because why not um and as a boss described me as a few years ago i'm a bit of a magpie so career-wise i like to do things that are new and untried they look interesting and shiny 
but I'm not here to be like the rinse and repeat patterns and like producing the stuff that I've already done before. 